Welcome to episode 203 of Destination Linux. Get your DLN mugs, take a sip, sit back, relax, and prepare to have the open source and Linux goodness delivered directly to your frontal lobe. My name is Michael, and with me today are the Knights Who Say Knee, Ryan, Noah, and Jill. <laughs> of course. <laughs> like, every week we have these really weird, silly things to introduce it, and this one, I just love this one. This is fantastic. <laughs> so, Monty Python. <laughs> exactly. Who doesn't love Monty Python? Anyway, so this week we wanted to talk about something that I think is very interesting. We've talked about it recently on many episodes about related to privacy and stuff like that and, how, and ways to stay private on the internet. And this week we wanted to talk about Tor. And this raises questions through using like the Tor browser. Is it safe to use? Can you really remain, remain like truly anonymous using this tool? And those things and many other questions we want to dive deep into in this episode. And of course, in addition, we'll be covering some community feedback, gaming tips, tricks, and software picks, all this and so much more coming up right now on Destination Linux. So Ryan, I got to ask you something about the video you posted on your channel, the Razer laptop. So I mean, Razer products are quite popular these days. A lot of people are interested in them. So Ryan, I need you to, to convince me to not want this. <laughs> I really had a fun time playing with Razer. I don't know, Noah, you're a hardware guy like me. Have you ever been tempted at the Razer line of laptops? Or is it one of those things like for me where it was like, eh, it's Razer just throwing their name on something. I'm not interested. Actually, I had questioned for years. I was like, man, I wish System 76 would totally take like a Razer laptop, rip all the Razer stuff off, open the thing up, resolder it, make it work with Linux and then resell it. Because I would spend a lot of money <laughs> for a really good computer that had amazing Linux support. The thing about Razer is they make an amazing computer. Doesn't all? It doesn't seem like their focus is Linux. Obviously, people have tried it. Obviously, people make it work, but it doesn't ever seem like it was their focus. Well, that was my. This is the experiment that I'm going through. I'm trying to find what I consider the perfect PC laptop out there. ThinkPad. <laughs> <laughs> and ThinkPad <laughs> is one of those that definitely oh. comes to mind. But Dell XPS and others, but they're all missing something. And that something is generally paying attention to the small things in the manufacturing process. The touchpad, does it have a good, nice glass or at least smooth trackpad that doesn't indent when you push it, doesn't have, uh, you know, the, the creaking sounds and all of these things that come with generally you see in these cheaper laptops that has something other than, get this, a 1920 by 1080 screen. And I'm not just talking about the crap resolution that seems to come with most of these laptops. I'm talking about the quality of the screen itself. It's nits, it's color reproduction. You know, is it Adobe, a uh, full 100% Adobe RGB compatible? Does, you know, these things that these manufacturers are just constantly looking past in the Linux ecosystem with the hardware that's made for Linux and outside of the Linux ecosystem, it seems nearly every PC manufacturer is just kind of cutting corners in these things. And frankly, when you look at something like an Apple MacBook, they don't cut corners on those things. They have good front top firing speakers. They have good retina screen. It's at least 2K. It has great color reproduction, has great nits and brightness. They have the aluminum body shell. They don't have any ports. And there's many things we could talk about bad. But why can't we have that in a PC market? So Razer caught my attention because it's a very expensive laptop line. It's meant to be for gamers. Um, so they put a lot of enthusiast work into making sure the trackpad, the keyboard, the screen itself is high quality. So I wanted to check out one without spending $2,000. So I checked out the Razer Stealth 2016. It's got a 4K screen. It's only 12 
inch 4K screen. It's 12 inch screen. 100% Adobe RGB, 4K. 3840 by 2160 IGZO touchscreen, indium, gallium, zinc, and oxide. So this is basically reproducing the IPS quality of a screen, but lower power. So you get better battery life out of it. Get a nice hard drive in there, decent uh, processor, good RAM, Thunderbolt 3, which I know is a big deal for you, Noah. So then you could hook up an eGPU if you want. It's, and Honestly, it's a deal killer at this point. And it has an anti-ghosting keyboard. Now, ghosting is where you're typing really fast on your keyboard, but your keyboard can't keep up. So, you know, you have the ghosting effect on it. So this, they've even worked on the keyboard itself. You're not convincing me not to want it. So you need to fix that. <laughs> yeah. Can you take the other side? What's the downside here? <laughs> the downside is that Noah was right. The Linux compatibility on this is not quite there. Now, with a few tweaks, which I have found and will be doing a video on now that I released the review of the actual physical unit, you can get Linux running really well on this machine. But out of the box, it has some issues such as randomly freezing if you push the caps lock key. Just don't push the caps lock key and you're good, though. But there is a fix for that. Um, that is the oddest one. Like anytime you hit the caps lock key, it would just completely lock up the machine fully. Uh, there are workarounds and there are ways to fix it. Like I said, I'll have a video on it, but it was very interesting. The other disappointment here is that on Razer's newer line, they went back to 1920 by 1080, still charging a lot of money until you get into the 2000 plus market. You can get a 4K screen again. Went back to 1920 by 1080 and just increased the Hertz this time. So you get 140 Hertz or even a 300 Hertz laptop, <laughs> which you know how much necessary that is because all pro <laughs> gamers need a 300 Hertz refresh screen on a 1920 by 1080 screen uh, and things like this. And also this particular stealth line, they soldered the RAM. So you can't upgrade the know. drive. You <laughs> can't get in there and repair the fan. So one step up from Apple products there, but they soldered the RAM, which was a huge disappointment uh, for me to see that. But otherwise it was fascinating to play with this because out of all of those Lenovo's Dell's and everything that I've had here just this year alone, what over 12 or 13 different laptops, this was the closest one to actually having the near perfect combination of putting the time and attention to detail in every aspect of the laptop and not skimping. And so I'm very excited to see where Razer could go if, like Noah said, they could actually get that Linux compatibility in there. They're selling something that looks like it could actually be a true premium PC. Do you think that Razer has misaligned their audience like so for example the, the people that are sitting out to buy a razor computer the people that are that want to buy a razor computer and what and and what razor expects of their cu customers is probably a windows dominant laptop right and so when you look at what the motivation for razor to go there would first be there was proven success with the things like the dell xpss and the lenovo's and and so on and so forth and and i guess the the progression that i see is Lenovo comes out and supports it. Dell comes out and supports it. System 76 comes out and supports it. Everybody buys those machines. There's an overwhelming demand for workhorses that run on Linux. And then Razer comes out and says, okay, instead of just having a workhorse, wouldn't you like a workhorse that also looks really nice and has a lot of polish on top of it? Isn't that kind of what would be necessary for Razer to, to really bring something new to the game? Yeah, absolutely. And keep in mind, I'm not going at it as can we convince Razer because they they will go, Razer will go where their community is, right? They're going right. to go where they, they're going to sell it. So like you said, if Dell and Lenovo sell a bunch, then Razer will be like, hey, we want to make it really compatible with Linux too. Before then, you're probably not going to get a whole lot of effort there. But what I want to do is see, because we know the Linux community can get Linux to work on dang near anything. In fact, we'll be mm -hmm. talking about a story later about some of that. 
is, is more so on the side of why can't we have a PC that we sell to developers? Because that's what a lot of the excuse is when you see these higher end PCs that have these crap 1920 by 1080, 300 nit screens is, uh-huh. well, it's for developers. They're not gamers. But you can't tell me developers, number one, don't watch movies and play video games after they're done developing. Sure. And even beside that fact, why would a developer want to look at a, if you're working outside or anything else in this low bright screen that has no color, you know, collaboration on it and is just overall a junky screen you'd find in a $600 laptop that you pay $1,900 for. I don't understand mm-hmm. why Dell and Lenovo and everybody else continues to put crap components inside these machines, not all of them, but most of them inside these machines and basically just go off of selling on Intel. The problem I have with Razer though, along those same lines is when I look at their new lineup, they're doing the marketing thing too. See, most people go in the store and they say, I want an Intel, I want a Ryzen. That's all they know. That's what they come in the shop for. I want Intel Ryzen. And my friend said 16 gigabytes of RAM. So that's what they go and get. But Razer is now- That's when you stop and say, because your friend had to specify the 16 gig RAM, you shouldn't be picking out a a PC for yourself. Yeah. But because I I see Razer's new lineup to me as something where they're just saying, hey, instead of having an enthusiast laptop where we build this perfect machine that we're really proud of, like I think they were doing with the Razer Stealth here, when you go Mm -hmm. backwards and go back to a 1920 by 1080 screen and just say, well, it's 144 hertz now, I feel like they're just playing the marketing thing of saying, hey, it's 144 hertz and every gamer out there right now is talking about if you don't have 144 hertz, you can't game. And that's the type of stuff where I think you know, these companies kind of, they don't have somebody who's passionate about hardware, building their hardware. They're just going Mm -hmm. to a manufacturer saying, plug in these things we hear people talking about and shipping it out the door. I'm hoping to find a PC manufacturer that doesn't do that. Now, don't don't you believe though, to Mm -hmm. a certain extent that Razer's community are passionate people? I mean, the people who buy Razer computers buy it because they want like, or they believe that it is the nicest gaming computer out there, don't they? Yeah, I think they're passionate about the specs of, I got the good video card, right? I got the NVIDIA 1660 Ti. I've got the nice CPU in it. I've got the good RAM. I don't think a lot of people, frankly, understand the differences in screen. They, For instance, you could say, well, it has a 4K screen, but it could be a crap 4K screen with no uh, color calibration at all. And that's not any better than having a 1920 by 1080. So it's the whole package. It's putting these premium things together. And no, I think that they... I think a lot of these people look for ways to save money, a lot of these manufacturers, and still charge a premium on top of it for stuff that they don't think people are going to ask about. And frankly, they're right. People don't ask about it and they deal with it and they just hook up an external monitor instead that's 2K or 4K and go, well, I can still game on it. Yeah. And it's so true, um, Ryan. Uh, Another thing is I actually have a lot of my students use Razer products because of their beautiful screens. Mm-hmm. Um, their laptops that are high resolution because they're great for artwork and rendering as well as gaming. And some of them want to get into game development. So it just kind of makes sense. And something that w- was really nice at last year, I went to the local open source summit here in Southern California. And I had someone from Razor contact me and said, you know, we're looking for people who will review Linux on our hardware. Nice. Look yeah. at that. So I know there's the interest there. But, you know, I hadn't been contacted since then, but I know there's the interest there because <laughs> so many of us Linux users do love our Razer products. I've had the Laser Black Widow Chroma keyboard I've been using for years, and I wanted the Razer Blade Stealth uh, when it was first introduced at con- the Consumer Electronics Show. They make yeah, some of the best hardware components out there in the market. I would be very excited to yeah. see it. 
I would also be very excited to whoever was the designer of the 2016 laptop to get them to create their next lineup back again. I can only assume they were told, you know, hey, we're going back to 1920 by 1080 and 120 hertz. Get them back in there as an enthusiast, uh, whoever they are, because I think Razer could come into the market and steal the PC market because we don't have yes. a solid manufacturer for PC, in my opinion, that's producing a premium product. Sony Vio back in the day, mm-hmm. really good laptops. Yeah. yeah. Sony Vio was the Apple equivalent in the PC market. And today, frankly, we don't have that. All right. So in our community feedback this week, our discussion takes place in discourse and a user SBeeb started a discussion on the mailing list saying it's 2020 and open source software managed email mailing lists. Think mailman have been around since the 1990s. I know where this is going. I think it's time for these <laughs> tired, old, clunky, cumbersome to search mailing lists to be retired and replaced with something more modern, probably something Slack like like say Mattermost or maybe Discourse, yet it's still open source or maybe Matrix or a self-hosted GitLab instance. Pretty much anything like that would be an improvement in my honest opinion. I feel it's important that it needs to be easily searchable and easy to back up and upgrade for whomever maintains it. If you could wave your magic wand and magically get some specific development community to quit with the mailing lists and use something more modern and more friendly to mobile, what would it be? I think I know Noah's answer, but... Let me just ask for fun. Noah, what would you use? I mean, first of all, do you think... Matrix! <laughs> I would use Matrix! <laughs> Matrix is the best answer here. Here's... No, but in, in all seriousness, though, I, I, I had this discussion with my employees uh, like two weeks ago, three weeks ago, something like that. We were having a conversation about like, how do we land on what platform, what what tools, and how, how do we make those decisions and why? And what I told them was, and it, it like everybody in the room kind of went, I guess he was going to say that. If it's not open source, it's a temporary placeholder until open source gets there. That's just the kind of the way I feel about it. And the reason that that is the case is because I can't truly depend on it until I own it. I can't truly depend on it until I know it's not going away. And we had this conversation where we're debating Slack versus uh, Matrix. And one of the things that you can't do in Slack, you can't mute individual users. And I had tweeted at Slack and said, hey, you know, Maybe you could make it so that, you know, you can mute individual, you can mute channels. Maybe you could mute individual users. And there was like a hundred and some people that had also tweeted towards Slack. And so there's this big thread that's still on Twitter. And Slack basically said, sorry, not in our roadmap, not something we want to do. We don't think you should ignore people on your team. Like, well, you should come work on my team and see why there are some people worth ignoring. Um, and, 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 and so when you started looking at all of the, the just the, the actual functional things that you could do with Matrix that you couldn't do with Slack, there was an advantage there. And, and that was a great start. But when you start to get to the point where you start saying the, these esoteric style use cases where they have some sort of outlier communication process and you want to tie that into the mainstream, how do you do that? And mailing list is a great example of that. I had a slightly more esoteric example. What happens when the internet goes down, how do I still maintain connections with the people that I most want to do that? And of course, in ham radio, we have FT8. And so I have the ability, as long as I have a coax cable that comes into my room and the radio and a 12-volt power supply that sits over there, I can talk to everybody else that's on that network. Of course, I want to receive those messages inside of my matrix client, right? And so I take my home server that runs inside of my own network rack, run a bridge that talks to FT8 and can and can and can 
can forward those messages. Those messages then are sent and received and displayed in my element client, just like IRC messages, just like Discord messages, just like Telegram messages, just like updates to our ticket system, just like updates to our work actual matrix instance that's paid and hosted by EMS. All of those things get delivered into one client. And that one client has a tremendous amount of notifications options to include. I don't want to look at anything at all. I just want to go into this channel and see what the updates of the mailing list are. Uh, or I, every time something comes up, I want to know that this thing is happening. And so there's a, a number of projects that have created what they call announcement channels or news channels in Matrix. And so you can subscribe to those. You can't post in them. There's no discussion. But when the newest version of, of a software is released, and a lot of these people just tie it to uh, to their GitHub or GitLab account. So when uh, individual commits or, or things like that are pushed, um, that, just get, that just shows up in a room. But the nice thing is in the same place that I'm already dealing with day-to-day -day work communications, I can hop into, and I'll just use Synapse announcements for an example, and I can see what the latest version of Synapse or Dendrite, or I was playing with... Um, Hydrogen this weekend, which is a lightweight uh, matrix uh, web client that can be that we're using to embed inside of web pages. All of those things can be accessed from one place. And so when I start to look at what open source ecosystem exists to uh, to for for group collaboration and messaging, the 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 spec that you should be using is matrix. Now, as to how do you want to read those messages, how do you want to interact with them? You could certainly uh, you could certainly integrate things like Activity Pub and make it more of like a social network thing. And there are projects that are doing that. You could do the traditional Slack style uh, team collaboration messaging. That would be Element. You could do the Telegram style. I just want every message to show up as a separate little bubblehead thing. Uh, and you could use something uh, like fractal um, or Nico, which is something I've kind of gotten uh, uh, really sucked into. But if you conform to that spec, that open spec that uses uh, HTTP to send and receive data, it means that it can talk to literally anything on earth and it means anything on earth can talk to it. And so you can customize the way that you want to receive your experience and you can customize the things that you want to connect to. Now, the one of the arguments I've heard for mailing lists is mm -hmm. that there are a lot of countries where internet and bandwidth heck even in this country in certain parts of the region are so restrictive that an email mm -hmm. is something that requires very little uh, bandwidth and you know a very short amount of internet time overall in case you have caps and things like that to just pull down the email and then respond and get back on the internet and send it out that type of thing in which a matrix instance wouldn't really allow you to do that right um, no, actually. So the so one of the things Matrix is actually merging with Gitter, and well, actually, really, Matrix is, is uh, taking over the Gitter project. But one of the things that Gitter, another open source messenger, had that Matrix looked over and said, "We want that." Is instant room peeking, and so when you load a room in Matrix right now, the way it works is because every room is federated to every other server. Your server downloads that room, and then of course it has to send that big ball of web packet to your client, and your client has to interpret it. So Right now, what the Element client is doing is it just says, okay, what is the most necessary parts of that big ball of web packet? Let me render that and get the user going so they can participate in the discussion. Then I'll go and back, backfill the rest of the room so if the user wants to scroll up, they can see all of that. The idea is to get room peaking to within four seconds on any on 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 even the most remedial uh, network connection. Many of the people that are using Matrix are on a dial-up connection and have just literally they're being measured in kilobits up. And never never was this more clear than the first time I went traveling uh, after switching over to Matrix. And we were out in the middle of nowhere. We had nothing, and I had a. Um, 
I have a I have a system that I use to try to get internet when I'm in a place that that you know different antennas and different services and so on and so forth. And so I started cycling through that. Eventually established a connection, but it was like 256k down. I mean, it was just abysmal. Mm. But it was enough that I was able to send and receive matrix messages because at the end of the day, it's literally just a ball of text uh, wrapped in an encrypted wrapper. And so if you can load a web page, you can load a matrix message. Um, but yeah, the 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 currently it's lazy loading, so it's just loading the the most recent events to try to, to to try to compensate for low bandwidth. But I would imagine over the next few months, as they as they implement the way that Gitter has instant room peaking, matrix will also have room instant room peaking the same as Telegram. In order for that to work, though, part of the issue is they built Synapse as a server to demonstrate what was possible. Now they're working on Dendrite, which is matrix done right in Go. Um, and so when that, and that when we're just about there, there is a few, probably a few more months before it's on feature parity with, with Synapse. But once it gets there, you're going to have a way more performant environment on matrix. But again, I think that kind of sidesteps the users or or that 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 kind of circumvents the 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 question which is you know why would you choose one particular system or the other or why would you choose to to base on something or what makes for for a better option if you're look the, the purpose of a mailing list is to get to, is in my opinion is to keep the people who are actively engaged in that process actively engaged in that process and and let communication go come and go but then also to let people on the periphery keep kind of an eye on what's going on with that project and kind of keep up to date and insert themselves where necessary. And I can't think of a better system to do that than Matrix. Matrix is essentially email, but instant. Are you with, get, are you for getting rid of mailing lists, email mailing lists officially? Yeah, because here's why. Email was really designed at a time before, uh, really before we, before we had our, ha- our, our, our hands wrapped around the kind of complexities that that this requires. And so anybody who, there are two ways to run mail. We were talking about this on Ask No at the After Show last week. There's two ways to run a mail server. The first way is you either set up your own mail server and you devote a significant amount of time to dealing with spam and blacklists and all of those kinds of things. Or you log into your organization's DNS and you become a pointer for Office 365 or G Suite. And and that is the primary two ways that people are are, are doing that. And the reason that they're doing that is because there's no controls built into email or the protocol um, to keep it secure and and to to, to mitigate things like spam and and, and those kinds of things. Matrix addresses all of that, right? You can have private federation if you wanted a message or a certain mailing list to... um, to, to, to never tra- traverse the, the the matrix fediverse so to speak you can use ACLs to include what people are you know either either see messages or compose messages so on and so forth all of these things are tremendously difficult right in in email chains you literally say either we have an explicit allow list and then we have to deal with all of the spoofing aspects of that because again email was never built for that or we just say hey if you're not sending from this domain and we have all of these records and stuff to prove that you're sending from this domain and if those records aren't sent up then it doesn't work uh then we only allow it at and then whatever the domain name is. I, I really don't. I think email was a solution that was shoehorned uh, into fit for a mailing list and lack of a better way to communicate. In 2020, I think we have a lot better ways to communicate and we should be using them. You know, to the folks who are sending us email, you know better than to trigger Noah by putting Matrix in there. You know what's going to happen. <laughs> don't even ask. You ask him. Like, what do you think about Matrix? Of course. Of course. What do you think, Michael, about all this? I sit through this week in Matrix every week. There you go. <laughs> well, I, I think that there's, uh, in, in terms of the mailing list and them going away, I, I'm 100% behind that. I, I just can't stand mailing lists because what, if 
the idea for being able to be participating in a developer sense, I get why some people still like that. But the the onboarding aspects of mailing list is just abysmal. It's the worst experience. And especially when you first mm. get into using it and you you sign up for one and then you're just inundated with just tons of email about just all kinds of random stuff that happens to be happening through the project. It, it becomes way too much very quickly. So in terms of like getting rid of mailing list i am all for that and i hope every project considers at least implementing something where you can combine the two so that you don't have to use it like uh there's a project called HyperKitty, which gives you an interface that allows you to not have to deal with the mailing list and you have a, a nice more modern interface at least something like that but in terms of like Matrix or whatever, I think that Matrix is a good option uh, for, and, and even Fedora announced that they're going to be switching to Matrix, which is cool. But there's also uh, some other projects like Mattermost or Rocket Chat or other things that could kind of provide a solution that at least gets rid of the 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 ancient times of mailing lists and and whatever people use that would be great to just give something that's a little bit more modern. However, I do see that there is a value in Matrix if you are able to. Uh, so if you switch to Matrix, you not only get the benefit of having modern technology, but you also get the federation aspects where one person can just have one client and not have to sign up for all these different services. Like with Rocket mm -hmm. Chat, you have to sign up for every single instance of Rocket Chat, and that's right. just kind of annoying. So I get that there's also there's appeal for the user to use Matrix as well because you know there's only one service to sign up for. And that's great. There's, you know, the, and the, the other thing is, you know, a lot of people don't want to sign up for accounts. And so one of the things that Matrix, because it's literally, because they're literally web packets, right? You, I set up um, geeklab.ninja and if you can go to geeklab.ninja. You don't have to sign up for an account. You don't have to register for anything. You just type geeklab.ninja into your web browser and boom, you're instantly dropped into the Geek Lab chat room. And you can at least see what's going on. And then if you want to participate in the discussion, you can register mm -hmm. for a... Um, for a matrix uh, username and MXID and then, and then start participating. I don't know that there is any other system out there that allows the level of flexibility and integration uh, with messaging that matrix does. And so, you know, we looked at rocket chat and matter most, and all of those are great. And if, and if the, and if the, if the bar is an open source messaging system that can handle the same things as Slack, then all of those matter most and rocket chat certainly check those boxes. And so does Gitter. Um, but then when you start looking forward, like, well, how do I tie it to other things? And what about people who don't want to be on those platforms? Then how I can use it. That's where I think like those platforms start to fall away and Matrix just takes off. Well, really good question, SB. Thank you for starting that conversation in our discourse. And you could see you got Noah all riled up because you mentioned Matrix <laughs> in there. But I agree with what everyone's saying here. I think we all uh -huh. need to move on past email mailing lists. And Matrix seems like a really good bet for it. We love hearing from our worldwide community. What we want you to do is fill your official DLN mug filled with some coffee. I'm sorry, what? You don't have one. <laughs> well, then you better go over to destinationlinux.org and buy yourself one. one. Fill it with some coffee. <laughs> Sit down at the nearest stool. Send an email or a matrix message to comments at destinationlinux.org. If, uh, if you want a more direct one-on-one -on -one chat, then we invite you to join at destinationlinux colon matrix.org. Join the fun there. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by 
DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new app platform service, which is a solution to build the cloud native apps. With app platform, you can build, deploy, scale apps with static websites quickly and easily. You simply point your GitHub repository, let the app platform do all the heavy lifting, Bob's your uncle, and you'll have an app deployed in no time at all. It supports Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, and Docker. DigitalOcean runs this app platform because they want to make it easy for you to get your code running in production. That's how DigitalOcean got started. A lot of us think of them as just a place to rent servers, but the truth is DigitalOcean set out to build an infrastructure built around developers so that you can get your code up and running and people can see how it works. Uh, they have they built this app platform on the DigitalOcean Kubernetes, providing smoother migration paths so you can take control of your infrastructure and setup. And of course, as a listener of this show, you're going to get a special deal, a deal that they don't give anybody else. They're going to give you a $100 credit by going to do.co slash DLN. Again, do.co slash DLN. You're going to get $100 credit. I've never gotten $100 from just going to a URL, but you're going to get $100 just <laughs> by going to do.co slash DLN. That does two things. Well, three things. One, it gets you a $100 server. Let's not overlook that. Two, it tells DigitalOcean that you're thankful that they sponsor the Destination Linux podcast, which means there will be an episode 204 if you go to do.co slash DLN. And the third thing, I don't remember what the third thing is, but you definitely should go to do.co slash DLN, get that $100 credit because it's free, spin up a server. You could run one monster server for a little bit or a bunch of little servers to do all sorts of different things. And a huge thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this week, Destination Linux. Okay, so we're going to have an amazing discussion about Tor. That's is for hackers and bad people, Jill. <laughs> no, it isn't. Keep our children safe. <laughs> yes. Is Tor safe? Okay, so the first thing we want to clear up when discussing Tor, otherwise known as the Onion Router, <laughs> is that no, it is not just a tool for nefarious purposes. Tor is used by many, like myself, who just simply want to better protect themselves from the overwhelming amount of surveillance techniques being used on the internet. To use Tor, all you need to do is go to their website and download the Firefox-based Tor browser or download and boot Tails OS, which has a pre-configured Tor browser already installed. If you really want to go onto the dark web, <gasps> you can... Dun, dun, dun. But it's, it's not a requirement for using Tor. You can just, you know, browse all the sites you usually do. There is the question, is Tor actually good at securing your privacy? Let's give a simplified description of actually how Tor works. Tor works by routing traffic through multiple servers and encrypting it each step of the way. It does this by building a circuit of encrypted connections through the relays on the network. The circuit gets extended one hop at a time, and each relay only knows which relay gave it data. So the very important thing is here, it's all about the relays for security on the internet. So the client negotiates a separate set of encryption keys for each hop. So each relay, in theory, only sees one hop in the circuit of connections. The idea be being a compromised hop would not be able to use traffic analysis to determine where the request came from. Additionally, the Tor browser isolates cookies and deletes your browser history after each session, adding an additional layer. So I want to just start a conversation. Do you use Tor? And what do you think of Tor? 
I like Tor and I use Tor and the, the, the primary reason I use Tor is not necessarily to obfuscate my internet traffic because I've wanted to do that. There's also VPNs, right? But the thing that I like about Tor that, that, that is fundamentally different from any VPN service is it gives you access to part of the internet you ordinarily wouldn't have access to. Secondary to that, mm -hmm. the part of the internet that you get access to is really how we all wanted the internet to work to begin with. The idea that my ISP tracks what I look at on Amazon because they can tell that based on what the DNS entry is. And sells it. And sells it. So they, they, these guys are making money three different ways, right? I'm paying for the internet. Then they're taking the, the information that they're finding about my use of the internet, and then they're selling it back to other people, and then taking using that information to resell stuff back to me. So it's mm -hmm. it's super frustrating. And, and Tor fundamentally goes around all of that because nobody necessarily knows who it, who anybody is. And, and, and we probably should have started with this. The, 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 the basic premise of the way that Tor works is this. As a user, I connect to an entry node, and that node knows what my actual IP address is, but that's the only node on the entire Tor network that knows. Now, you can run this in your house, or you can connect to one of the many free available public nodes that there are. Once that happens, something very interesting happens, because the original source traffic is obfuscated, and... It, and and so it bounces from one node to the other, making it very difficult, if not impossible, to trace. The only node that knows where the correct originating sender was, was that original entry node on the Tor network. Now, there's a positive side and downside to that, right? The positive side is that if you run your own node or there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a public node, then it's very difficult to figure out who it is that's connecting. The downside is, of course, any government can run an entry node. There's nothing stopping them. And of course, they have absolutely the ability to sniff all of the traffic that's coming in through that entry node. And secondly, because the public entry nodes are very well understood and very well known, the addresses are oftentimes blocked from countries that are trying to um, that are trying to, to censor information. So I think that I use Tor, but not necessarily because I want access to some nefarious part of the internet. I use Tor because I want to make sure that I always have access to a free internet. Well, what's, in beer. what's interesting about mm -hmm. Tor is that I don't use it on a regular basis because it's not something that I necessarily need a lot of, but I do plan mm -hmm. on and have spent uh, this last week just doing a ton of different things like setting up a uh, onion, onion router server. I have set up an entry node for the Tor network just to, so I could better understand and, and know I think your explanation of it was mm -hmm. perfect. There's a minimum of three hops that your connection is going to go through. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that there are several types of attacks that can take place. And there are several types of attacks that have taken place. But this is true. And, and I've seen this used as kind of a don't use Tor because obviously it can be compromised. By the way, obviously everything can be compromised. There is yeah. not you know, your VPN that you're talking about. Anything on the internet about. can be compromised. I will. I will, I will <laughs> the VPN you're talking about can yeah. be compromised. They've will, been known to sell your records. I will. Yes. I will debate that with you a, a little bit. I read through case reports because I think it's fun. When somebody goes, when somebody gets charged by the FBI and it goes to court and it's in public record, I want to know how did that person, what did that person do? How did that person mm -hmm. get taught, caught? How are they using the technology? How did the technology betray them? What happened? And I read through all of those, and. What I can tell you is that there are a lot of people that get caught using Tor. There are very few people that get caught uh, using VPNs. When VPN, typically, this is the way that it looks like in a court transcript when you're using something like private internet access. 
we requested private internet access give us the logs. Private internet access says that they don't have logs and asked us to come look at their facility if they wanted if we wanted to do any further investigation. No other further information could be found. We couldn't prove that this user connected to. I mean, it's it's like a total. It's like a black void, and VPNs have that, and Tor does not. And well, what I've you, seen you a, mentioned a very specific VPN. So before you go any further, mm-hmm. there, yes, private internet mm-hmm. uh, internet yep. access has had a court case. One or two. Multiple. No, multiple, multiple. There's only <laughs> but, one or two that I'm actually familiar with. And, and, they've, and they've proven so, but, that they've not actually captured records. But there are lots right. of VPNs where that's proven not to be the case. And people have been caught with VPNs. Yes. which but they're is not why, necessarily safe either. Unless you pick the right one. I agree. But one of the things that, that is concerning to me is in a couple of court cases, the federal officials have come out and said, we they'll, they'll throw the case before they'll come out and say how it is they track those users down. And that to me is the most terrifying because it means that they have some, they, or, well, I guess it, we don't know what it means, which is why it's terrifying. But the, the speculation is that they have some way uh, in, in certain cases of compromising tour. Now, the speculation is if you look in the forms and in the, in the browser and in, excuse me, in the forms and in, uh, in the in the chat rooms, the speculation is that a lot of those exploits are being handled through the actual Mozilla Firefox package, um, mm-hmm. as oftentimes users are are, mm-hmm. are using the bundle Tor and Firefox, and there are a number of exploits that can be used inside of the browser. And so they've done the best they can, but it, 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 some of these exploits actually require disabling things like JavaScript, which breaks a, a certain amount of sites. Um, and so it's not necessarily possible to do that. The th- I, I point that out only to uh, only to 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 provide a discussion point, Ryan, when saying, "Hey, uh, when we're comparing VPNs to Tor, that kind of um, that kind of hey, we 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 thought we had them, we could prove it, but we'd rather just throw the case than come out and open open court and say how it is we did that." Could just be they're making it up, right? We don't know. That's why the cases get thrown because the, you can't provide proof. But the, the the speculation there is that if there is a way to get around that, why is that happening in Tor? Why is that not happening in VPNs? Indeed, when you go and talk to some people, when you go and talk to some people, it doesn't happen in VPNs. It it does. It, people it get busted okay, in VPNs sorry. all the time. Excuse me. It doesn't happen in well re- researched VPNs. If you read, if you go through and look at which VPNs have an established track history and which ones do well in court then the open VPN technology, leaving out providers for a second, open VPN technology is not something that we routinely see, oh, there was this exploit in open VPN or there was this log thing that gave this user aware. We don't see that happening. So I think it's interesting because a lot of, even Tor will recommend, in fact, when you're browsing Tor, a a lot of sites will recommend, hey, you need to be using a VPN in addition Mm -hmm. to utilizing Tor Mm -hmm. as kind of that double safe mode. Of course, if you're not doing anything nefarious on Tor to begin with, which is not its design and purpose to begin mm-hmm. with, then you should be good. But there, what we're talking about, why, t- why Tor is so important is journalists, right? Mm-hmm. Journalists or people who are whistleblowing some some very bad activity and things like that that are going on. Snowden comes to mind. You know, Tor is something that can be utilized to help create an environment in which these files and things can be shared without being intercepted without being monitored and sold as easily as if you were just to go to, you know, a, a regular site file uploader. I don't want to name one and push a site up, or push a file up there and Microsoft has access to it or Dropbox has access to it or anybody has access to it. And they're going to comply with any federal request to move that in. There are ways, like Noah said, of using Tails and a VPN and Tor mm-hmm. and all of this stuff. But Tor really is 
to me, they're one of the fundamental foundations of where a lot of that technology and really the understanding of why this stuff is important builds off of because mm-hmm. it's been around forever. Uh, well, as long as I've been um, in, involved in the security and privacy pieces, it's something that you'll hear a lot of journalists and even in, think in the Snowden documentary when he was setting up some file shares was utilizing Tor with that mm-hmm. reporter specifically, mm-hmm. um, have utilized in the past to be able to share this information. It's a very important technology. There's nothing that's 100% safe. I don't care what anybody says, but I think Tor combined with some other security practices, you're in a pretty good shape to not have, as long as you're not doing something that's going to be heavily targeted, not have somebody easily be able to go and intercept your traffic and take it. But there are concerns of people creating relays and doing what they, Mm -hmm. I don't know what the attack is called, but it's essentially if you own a certain percentage of the servers, Mm -hmm. then you basically can have, you can be, you can monitor the traffic from beginning to end if you have enough of the entry and exit servers controlled. so the, the the way that they're doing that is this: they they have a device that they work with the cable company to put on on your modem or just after your modem, and it we don't know what the traffic is, but we know when the traffic is sent, and we know what the size of the traffic was. On the other side, you have form XYZ or site XYZ that you suspect this user of using Tor to access. We set up a monitor on that side, and we watch when the user in question accesses the site. What kind of data are they sending? How? What is the rough approximation of that data? And we watch that data hitting the server. And when we watch on both ends, we can be- begin to form a correlation. Every time that user's online, this user, the, the user in question is sending data to the server. Every time this user mm-hmm. goes off over here, this user drops off. Every time this user uploads a picture, we see four to six megabytes of data. Co- and we see this correlation. And that's what they use in court to say, even though we can't prove that this guy over here was that guy over here, look at the correlation here, look at the traffic patterns, look at this. This is how we can say safely say that th- we can reasonably sure that this person is this, even though we don't have that person's IP address directly connected to, to this server. Interesting. Yeah. So at the end of the day, though, Tor is a very cool thing to check out. It's as simple as downloading a browser to go play with. You do not have to go onto onion sites or the dark web. You can just search regular websites if you want. And there's a lot of things out there on the dark web that are just normal hangouts and chat stuff. In fact, I went in them this week expecting all of this nefarious, terrible conversations to be taking place that were terribly offensive. And I went into the chat room and found they were talking about what they were eating. It was terrible. I reported to the FBI (laughs) immediately. Uh, I couldn't believe it. So uh, there are bad things out there, though. It's definitely something you wouldn't want to put your kids on and things or you'd want to monitor. But that's not all that's out there and something to check on. Also, Tor Project is hosting a Priv Chat, Chapter Number 3, Tor Advanced human rights. Edward Snowden will be there. Uh, He's one of the featured speakers. So you can check that out. The information will have a link in the topic. So you can go join that. That is on 1211 at 1300 Eastern time, 10 Pacific. So something to go check out if you're interested in all this tour talk. You want another way to stay secure on the internet? Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the best password manager out there Mm -hmm. on the planet. It's the one that we all trust and use. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager, as well as additional authentication, such as master passwords, adding phrases, fingerprint security, basically all the security things you could want to do with a password. I want to add in symbols. I want to make it 100 characters long. I want to have numbers or random words or anything you could think of. Bitwarden has those features built into it. 
It's the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to share and sync sensitive data as well. You can get a $10 premium account. That's not $10 per month. That's not $10 per week. It's worth that. That's not what they're charging. It's $10 per year for a premium account. You get one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, Vault Health Reports, TLTUP authentication, and priority customer support. So make the smart move like many from the community already have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. If you're like me though, you're going to want to show your appreciation. You're going to pay that $10 per year for this amazing open source project that also pays and puts transparent reports out there of the third-party audits that they have to make sure they have the most secure password manager possible for you. Bitwarden.com slash DLN. So we talked about something that was pretty interesting in the previous episode, but this is even a little bit more interesting related to the Apple Arm M1 Mac stuff because there is a developer or hacker or whatever you want to call it. It's a, he's a developer who wanted to uh, work on making support for Linux on Apple Silicon. And this is actually really interesting because when I, when I first heard about this project, I was like, okay, yeah, but reverse engineering, thing, this would be a lot of effort and I don't really expect that much to happen for it. And then I found out who it was. And this is the developer who also made Linux work on the PS4 and also the Nintendo Wii and some other, a bunch of other stuff and has been doing- He's a good at hacking this story. Yeah. Hector yeah. Martin. Yeah. Awesome. yeah, exactly. Hector Martin does like a lot of reverse engineering stuff and it's just really interesting. So I was super excited to see that. And also to talk about like, the the how much it would need for him to do because it's like a full-time job basically to make this work and then you look at the amount of people who are helping on the patreon to make it happen is like over 900 people or something like that like it's a lot of people are willing to you know participate in this and i think that it's really awesome because like the first goal of the funding was to was reached in the first day so there's clearly an appetite for this kind of project and that is just awesome and linus Torvalds himself was quoted as saying he'd love to have one of these if it ran Linux. He just doesn't like the operating system, which right. I can't agree. Yeah. Can't, <laughs> I, I mean, well, how could you argue with that? That's brilliant. <laughs> but I thought there's some interesting things in the frequently asked questions that a lot of people we've talked, I've heard people talking about in the community, talking about Apple not allowing certain things and this, you know, Apple will try to ban it or whatever. Um, he addresses that in the frequently asked questions, such as, does Apple allow this? Do you need to jailbreak? And he says, Apple allows booting unsigned custom kernels on Apple Silicon Macs without a jailbreak. This isn't a hack or an omission, but an actual feature that Apple built into these devices. That means that unlike iOS, Apple does not intend, at least yet, because we know how Apple is, to lock down the OS that you can use on Macs though they probably won't help with the development. That's shocking. I figured they would be first in line. Like, yeah, we got you, man. We're going we're gonna to help you out. We're so interested. Um, and then will this Mac Apple Silicon be a fully open platform? No, Apple still controls the boot process. And for example, the firmware that runs on the secure Enclave processor. However, no modern device is fully open, which is true. No usable computer exists today that's completely open software and hardware as much as some companies want to market themselves as such. So, I thought he kind of nailed it with this whole thing. The guy's clearly capable of it. People clearly trust him because of what he's delivered on before. He's going to get his $4,000 plus a month here to build this. Easy. <laughs> and we'll have Apple, we'll have the ability to run Linux on these Apple Silicon. The question that I have though, the thing that comes to my mind is why can't we have our own ARM-based laptop that runs Linux out of the box without Apple being in the middle of there that has that same performance capability that the M1 has? 
Yeah. That would be possible. That would be way more interesting because, I mean, Linux ecosystem is like the go-to thing to run on ARM anyway. So it just makes sense if we could do that. So I, I hope there's a, some kind of company that would want to participate that in there because that becomes way more interesting than this. And it shows that with 964 people already wanting to make this a possibility to run Linux on an, the, M, the M1 Mac and stuff like that, if we could have this sort of st- thing going towards a company, if there was a company that is you know, in this the space already who is willing to do this, consider doing a crowdfunding thing because there's obviously people very interested in having that kind of hardware. And the only one I could think of that would pull this off is Pine 64. You'd have to, of course, come work with the ARM manufacturers, come with a processor that's far more powerful than what we're putting in the Pinebook Pros. And they're great for what they are. That's not a slam on them because they're awesome, amazing machines. But if you're going to compete at this level, which is essentially creating a pro-level Intel i7-level performance with a, e, um, not eGPU, but uh, embedded GPU inside then you're going to need something a lot more powerful to do that. But I like your idea, Michael. What if Pine64 went out and crowdfunded this idea? Like, mm-hmm. hey, if we created the the M2 uh, Pinebook <laughs> Pro, uh, nice. would you all be interested that it will come based with uh, Linux and have people crowdfund that? Because I would be first in line. And no matter what Noah says to counter-argue this in case he's going to, he would buy one too. <laughs> I would make him. I wouldn't buy one. Here's why. I... Uh, <laughs> I knew it. I, I want, I, I don't jerk. want to, here's the thing. There is, so let me, let me back up. Let me start here, right? I think it is a absolute crying pitiful shame that Apple's amazing, fantastic hardware is going to go by the wayside because once Mac OS doesn't run on these things, nothing else will. And more power, more power to this project. If this guy can get this to work, more power to him. The more things that we can run Linux on, the better. Um, that said, I have no interest in spending my money on a company who wants who doesn't want to run linux actively wants to make it difficult to run linux i don't want to spend money paying somebody else to reverse engineer it to make it happen anyway i'd rather just go work but with no i was saying you would spend your money if pine 64 came out with an arm based linux supported device not like the, the m1 pro. i knew you would yeah. never buy the m1 I mean, <laughs> like the pinebook pro Yes. Well, but, but a more like, high-powered version kind of thing. But a hyped-up version That's, of but it. Here, right. Okay, so, so okay. So, and th- this is where I think the split is, right? So, Pinebook Pro, I totally get it. 200 bucks, work, a school, fun laptop, uh, runs on ARM, perfect, right? That's great. I think once you try to get into powerhouse-level stuff, I don't know that I care if it's ARM or Intel. I just want it to run Linux and I want it to work. In fact, if you look at the amount of packages that are available for x86 and the amount of packages that are available for ARM, I don't know why you would choose ARM over x86 if you had a choice. Certainly, as ARM continues to get more powerful and as Intel continues to stagnate behind, that prop that 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 system will naturally change as developers start to push their software uh, for ARM. But I think Pine is exactly where they need to be right now. Of it, ARM is is our inexpensive, very, you scale horizontally, right? I can have lots of Pine books that all run this ARM operating system and do a really good job with a, a subset of minimal tasks. If I want an end-all, be-all workstation powerhouse computer, right now I still think that's better suited on x86. And I think Apple still thinks it's better suited on x86 and why they're doing a very limited rollout of the M1 and it's not just, mm-hmm. here's the new thing. Yeah, well, they got to get times for developers to catch up. Yeah, the irony of this is we've had ARM, ARM uh, 
netbooks for longer than max <laughs> yeah longer than that linux has been running on arm it was the first operating system to run on arm mm-hmm. besides unix and that's BSD. fair but you got to so. keep in mind that the arm processors we have are severely underpowered even compared to the i5s and i7s out there today where the m1 is actually competitive yeah competitive and well, exceeds the capabilities of the intel and and AMD processors out there in some cases. So this is not just, hey, we have an yeah. ARM processor. And ARM is very, the, the big, the risk architecture specifically is very appealing yeah. to people because of the fact that the M1 chip was able to achieve the x86-like performance at less than half the power that the Intel was doing, which means you don't have the heat problems, which means you get somewhere around 16 plus hours of battery life. These type of things do matter to people a lot when they're out in the field and things. And I think ARM is something we should definitely be looking at. And I, I it's not even should be looking at. They will be. Windows and everybody yeah. else will now copy and follow suit and we'll have a thousand of these things out there running some Qualcomm ARM chip or something, maybe, Snapdragon to try to Maybe, compete. maybe, you know, Microsoft continues to push down the direction of cloud-based services. And so as long as Office 365 works on an iPhone, I don't know that Microsoft cares. Yeah. Well, they've got their Surface line that they care to support. Yeah, but okay, maybe, fair enough. Maybe yeah. they'll drop it. Who knows? So since we've been talking about Tor this episode and just privacy in general, I wanted to talk about something that I think is really cool because, you know, Firefox Send is no longer a thing due to people being, you know, misusing it and spreading malware and that sort of stuff. But, you know, there were there are other things that are other options like that. And we wanted to highlight something for people who are on the, the hunt for another simple file transfer tool. And that comes to OnionShare. So OnionShare is a way to securely and anonymously share a file of any size with someone. It works by starting a web server on your machine, making it accessible as a Tor hidden service, and in generating an unguessable URL to access and download that file. And then you just send that, fi- that's that URL to whoever you want to send it to, whether you do it through like whatever communication tool for email or matrix or whatever you want, that kind of sort of stuff. You, and then once that's done, you can dis, uh, disconnect that, that transfer and kill that web server. And then you're good to go. And onion share makes it a really easy to approach to, to handle that. So if you want to check out uh, onion share, we'll have a link in the show notes below for that. Our tip of the week, we're continuing the exploration of Git. Now, if you've been following along, Git is a way for you to synchronize, uh, decentralize the way that you really develop code. But you can use it for all sorts of things, configuration files, uh, group discussion, or group project planning, or code. This week, we're going to be discussing Git add. Once you've used git init, now you have initialized your git repository. And so git is going to track the changes of those files, but you'll need to tell git which files it's supposed to track. And you'll do that by using git add. So you can start tracking them. Let's say you have a text file that you've created and you want it named readme.txt or really it should be readme.md. Simply type mm-hmm. git add readme.md while you're get to your git repository. Now any changes you made to readme.md will be tracked and you'll be able to roll back prior versions if needed. You can also commit those changes by uh by typing git commit tech m and then a message name and that will push it back up. We'll get to that in a future episode. So that's a teaser. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm so used to get add, get commit. Like they go yeah. one in hand. You can't have one without the I other. Know, without the other. I love that you're running. I love that you're actually doing it in your head. So you're just throwing out additional commands in there. Like this is what I would be doing next to go. I'm like, I've I've yeah. staged the things, but I haven't sent them. That's the worst thing to be. And now I've changed something, and nobody knows about it. We can't leave it there. 
Well, that last part is that you do the get status first so that you can actually see if the file is tracked, uh, make sure <laughs> or verify that it's tracked. But oh, Noah's already it, you know pushing it up to the repository, so he doesn't if, care. Here's the thing. If I'm get adding it, I know that it's not tracked yet. Right. There you go. Or it hasn't been changed. All right, so a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Yay. Linux. If you want more DL, become a patron like all of these beautiful people with us here now and get a bunch of perks like unedited versions of the show, VIP access to events, live recordings of Destination Linux every single Sunday, and you'll know about them if I send out the link in time. Or you'll know about them five minutes before <laughs> the show's supposed to start. But it's every Sunday, 1 p.m. So you just know the, that. And come hang out with the crew. And also, uh, if you want to check out some other stuff that is, you don't have to worry about getting link. It's always available. Go to dlnstore.com. You can pick up some swag, like t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, and even stickers. Uh, we, we're actually working on some more stuff, so there's a lot of stuff. And you can check out this shirt that, uh, turns out, me and Jill also happened to have the great taste in that, getting the stool shirts yeah. on one show. <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> we each have stools in our shot. <laughs> I love it. And, so you, and you'll especially want to get your own mug, and you can get a DLN mug, and there's a bunch of other mugs, like the Pseudo Show mug, and a bunch more. And you can get that. You can hold the spice of life, or you know, coffee, and you can have that and available mm. to you with, the, with the, all the great uh, the merch that you can get at the DLN store. So check that out. Go to dlnstore.com to get all of that awesomeness. And you know, we have so many wonderful shows here on the Destination Linux Network. We have our new pseudo show, your home for all things enterprise open source, the incredibly informative Ask Noah show, where you can call Noah with all your Linux tech and business questions live every Tuesday. And on This Week in Linux, Michael covers all the latest Linux news, and you can watch it live on Saturdays. And on the DOS Geek channel, make sure to watch Ryan's coverage from everything from computer hardware, Linux, and any software he is passionate about. And on DLN Extend, it takes conversations from the DLN community, and Nate, Matt, and Wendy have really great discussions. And get your computer hardware on and your camera rolling with Hardware Addicts. In the latest episode, Michael, Wendy, and Ryan discuss their favorite hardware of 2020 for the Hardware Holiday Gift Guide. It's Yay. all Apple, Noah. The whole thing's one big Apple. <laughs> that, was, that was awesome. <laughs> it's not. I'm teasing. <laughs> and get your game on with our latest show, Game Sphere with Chris Ware. And the first episode has been released, and the next one is soon to come. So go to DestinationLinux.network and subscribe to all these shows to get those penguins marching and the full Monty of Linux and open source awesome sauce. Everybody have a great week, and remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. That's the destination. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs> See you on tour. Yeah. <laughs> or not, because it's private. Oh my gosh, oh, yeah. I had so right. much more I could have said about tour also, but I'm like it was going long. So I just <laughs> Maybe we need tour part two. Tour yeah, revisited. Yeah, you know the what? Rematch. That might be yeah. pulling back more layers of tour. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Ah, I like the, it. The onion. <laughs> yes. <laughs>